Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
Hello and welcome history, friends, patrons, all to the Korean War episode 30. Last time we delved into the complex but also fascinating world of Anglo-American relations. We learned that all was not always well in the most important post-war Western alliance and that many points of disagreement existed on how to best pursue the Korean War. The British believed that the war should be reduced in its potency wherever possible, especially once the Chinese got involved in late November 1950. To Washington, this stance wasn't merely a repetition of the old appeasement policies of the 1930s. It was also dangerous for the American self-image. The British consistently put forward peace proposals in the UN General Assembly and consistently sought to bring compromise to the debate on the war, even if these weren't beneficial proposals to Washington. The Truman administration was of course acting with very different policy goals in mind to their British counterpart. They wanted huge budgetary increases for their defensive capabilities, not a compromise peace. In a sense, the Truman administration and their British ally acted quite unlike allies for much of the war period. But at the end of the day, their partnership was critical if the West was to guard against the communist expansion, and both recognised this fact. In this episode, we meet another example of such an alliance, that which existed between the Soviet Union and the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. By doing so, we will reinforce the thesis which I have been advocating throughout this series, and which we've been kind of taking a break from as we analyse the finer points of people's diplomacy. But we examine here the pertinent question, why Stalin seemed so determined to ensure his North Korean allies' failure. Yes, that's right, I said failure. I hope you'll stick with it guys and again that you'll approach this whole narrative with an open mind. We're 30 episodes in now and I have received some great feedback on my coverage of the war so far and many have even said how convincing this interpretation has been up to this point. Others aren't so convinced but that's fine. I'm not here to change the world. I'm just here to bring you my interpretation of the Korean War and hopefully send you all home happy. With this episode, we add further evidence to the bank which suggests that all was not as it seemed in the communist camp. Far from supporting North Korea to invade and conquer the peninsula, what Stalin truly wanted was to ignite a conflict in a region where foreign intervention would be virtually guaranteed. First the West and then the Chinese would guarantee that Korea became anything but an insignificant struggle on the fringes of the Cold War. Instead, it was a guiding plank in Stalin's policy to drive a determined wedge between the West and Mao Zedong's People's Republic of China. Let's see how this policy continued to play out then as I take you to the outbreak of war on the peninsula, but this time from the North Korean perspective. The song of the week this week is brought to you by 1956. Yes, indeed, 1956 is here and bringing you the latest episode, the latest song of the week for the Korean War. 1956 is actually quite intricately linked to the Korean War. So if you enjoy the Korean War taking place from 1950 to 53, perhaps you will consider dropping by and seeing what 1956 is all about. As the titles suggest, 1956 takes place three years after the Korean War's events, with the death of Stalin and several European powers trying to muscle their way into the Middle East, featuring as our main events, as you may or may not know. I have released several preview episodes for 1956, available for free in the feed, so be sure to listen to them if you haven't already. But if you have and you're thinking to yourself, 
do you know I'd love to support you, Zach, but you just send out so much freaking content, I don't even have the time. That is grand. Do not worry, I am not sad or offended. I am trying to make being a patron at the $5 level as good value for those patrons as possible. And by releasing two episodes every single month in the extra feed, that is how I go about doing it. It means you guys get to hear more about them and I never really shut up about them. But hey, if you like history, you like the Cold War era, and you like my style in kind of bringing it out to you, then 1956 will definitely be your thing. From September, we'll be looking at the Suez Crisis, and if you are interested in diplomacy, then you probably are aware of that event, especially if you're interested in any sense at all in the Cold War era. As far as events in the Cold War era are concerned, in my mind, the Suez Crisis is up there with the Cuban Missile Crisis, and perhaps even the fall of the Berlin Wall. The difference is, with the Suez Crisis, while there was an awful lot on the line, it's not really talked about very much anymore. So, I try and solve that in the only way I know how. Expect that in September, guys. I'm super excited to bring it to you all. Alrighty, so the song of the week this week is an extract of the American Heart Association's radio program to try and get people in January and February 1952 support that organization. It's pretty cool listening to fundraisers set nearly 70 years ago. Gives me some good ideas for myself. I'm just kidding. But on the other hand, I do think you guys will enjoy it. If you liked the first part, if you liked this lady's lovely voice, you will enjoy it again. Here she is back again with part two of this series. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 30 of the Korean War. He's gone away for to stay a little while But he's coming back if he goes ten thousand
As the artillery barrage began on the early morning of the 25th of June 1950, Joseph Stalin had triggered a scenario which presented an ideal win-win outcome. If the North Korean People's Army was triumphant, then the Soviet Union would gain a new communist ally in Asia at the expense of the Japanese and of the more independently-minded Chinese. America's reputation for containing any spread of communism, laid out publicly in the Truman Doctrine of 1947, would be greatly discredited, and Stalinism would have won a huge propaganda victory. On the other hand, if the initial push by the North was frustrated and the West then pushed successfully back up to the point of the Chinese border, then Mao Zedong would feel compelled to intervene for the sake of his country's security, thus ensuring that the West and the PRC became locked in a struggle which offered no tangible benefits for either side and would merely weaken the powers of both. Sino-American rapprochement would be impossible so long as American soldiers were fighting the Chinese in an unofficial war, and it was highly unlikely Mao would ever attempt to make the war official, since declaring a war against the United Nations would have been the absolute height of folly. Far better to act in the war in a different capacity, as so-called volunteer units in the People's Volunteer Army joined and then led the North Korean war effort against the South Koreans and their considerable numbers of allies. The Chinese, upon intervening here, would be essentially exiled from institutions like the United Nations, while Washington would refrain from normalising relations with Beijing, and certainly would maintain its support of Chiang Kai-shek on Taiwan instead. Thus, Stalin believed that a war triggered in Korea would have profound implications for the Soviet position, since the People's Republic of China would be dependent upon Moscow in the absence of any Western friendships. The Soviet Union would plainly benefit from such a one-sided relationship, and it meant that Stalin could lord the Soviet supremacy over the independently-minded Mao for as long as the alienation from the West lasted. In short, by triggering a war in Korea, Stalin was hoping to either reinforce Soviet influence on the peninsula in a strategically important flank, boosting the profile of communism and thereby reducing American prestige in the process, or he was seeking to make, in the People's Republic of China, a pariah state, excluded from the trappings of the United Nations, beneficial trade deals, or badly needed technological and developmental materials. Either way, the outbreak of the Korean War represented a win-win situation, and one which Stalin was keenly determined to take further advantage of. It has to be said that although a northern victory in the Korean War would have granted Stalin several advantages, he seems to have ultimately preferred the outcome, which would have produced, if not a northern defeat, than a stalemate on the peninsula. Through this outcome, Mao would be forced to act, and the alienation of China that Stalin desired would take place. If Stalin wished for the latter outcome, and if he wished for the frustration of Kim Il-sung's ambitions, then the questions of great importance were exactly how likely was the North Korean People's Army to achieve victory, and how would such a victory be guaranteed or prevented? In Stalin's mind, the years of supplying the North with military equipment, advisors, and no shortage of enthusiastic prodding, had created an armed force which was eminently more capable than their southern counterpart. This was, of course, the case, though Stalin's astute observations never discovered why this was the case. If the North was superior to the South, then a crushing Northern victory would be guaranteed, and the advantageous but less preferable win of a North Korean triumph on the peninsula would occur, 
rather than the more preferable outcome which led to Chinese intervention and estrangement from the West. You can probably see where this is going then. While Stalin wouldn't have been devastated to see Korea unite under his brand of communism, he evidently preferred to see the North Koreans fail in their initial objectives. What was more, he was more than willing to jeopardise his supposed allies' progress in order to make this happen. It is an incredible aspect of this tale that, thousands of miles away from the Kremlin, the Truman administration was working to develop a virtually identical set of circumstances in Korea to those that the Kremlin were working towards. In Washington, it was accepted that the military situation of the South would inherently be jeopardised if the North managed to push the Allies off the peninsula. If Syngman Rhee's regime was forced to flee to Japan, the prospect of returning to liberate the peninsula may well have proved pointless. Thus, the act of defending and holding the North Korean People's Army back from achieving such a triumph was the Allied goal. July was to be the month wherein the UN position was either saved by the will of the Allies to hold the North back, or it was to be the month where the Allies crumbled under the fiercely enthusiastic, well-led and well-equipped Northern Assault. Because the Truman administration wanted to transform the conflict into a struggle that would pull in the Chinese as well, it first had to be ensured that the next phase of this conflict was reached. If the Allies could hold on for the month of July as the reinforcements were prepared and Allied nations sent their own detachments, then the planned counter-attack by General MacArthur and the Allied advance which made it possible would follow. If they could not hold on, then not merely the war plan of the administration, but America's reputation and strategic position in Asia could well be jeopardised. The Allies wished to hold out until the war was given a chance to be transformed, and because his own policy goals also required the Allies to remain on the peninsula, Stalin was committed in his own special Stalin-like way to helping them out. In the event, after three weeks, with the failure of the North Korean assault on the Pusan perimeter, it was clear to both Washington and Moscow that Kim Il-sung could not conquer the South. The conventional reasons for why the North couldn't conquer the South generally take some time to examine the fighting prowess and resiliency of the American forces sent to defend against the North. Certainly this played a role, and Americans did find themselves responsible for the vast bulk of the fighting and defending, even after the other UN contingents made their presence known. Yet, this conventional explanation for the Northern failure does not tell the whole story. Indeed, the evidence actually strongly points to the likelihood of Stalin jeopardising his allies' advance down the peninsula, making it impossible in the process for Kim's forces to land the killer blow against the UN, which was needed. By so manipulating the war, Stalin could ensure that he got the conflict and outcomes that he desired, and the reason why such an observation is controversial is because, in this way, Stalin essentially saved the American 24th Division from its defeat at the hands of the North Korean People's Army. Now, hear me out. I know that this observation is unpalatable, especially to my American listeners, and indeed to those who may have had relatives still living that fought in that war, But again, I hope you guys will have an open mind as I explain why, I believe, one must consider the possibility at least that, far from an example of American military heroism, the critical month of July 1950 was instead the first instance of Stalin torpedoing Kim's dreams for the sake of the wider Soviet strategy. Let's examine my findings on such questions now before you all turn off. 
One thing we must consider about the northern invasion is the extent to which Kim's forces were genuinely flying by the seat of their pants throughout July. This is because, according to the Soviet war plan drawn up and presented to Kim Il-sung's court in early June 1950, a war in Korea would be over within days. As soon as Seoul fell, Kim was repeatedly told, the rest of the country would fall to him amidst communist and people's uprisings and the awakening to action of hundreds of thousands of sleeper agents who had been waiting for just such an opportunity as this. This was the declared view of the General Yu Song Chol, the North Korean Operational Bureau commander, who said, Once we occupied the South Korean capital, then the entirety of South Korea would come into our hands. It was also the view of the chief of the South Korean Workers' Party Affairs, who claimed that, Once we occupy Seoul, then the 200,000 South Korea Workers' Party members, who, in hiding throughout South Korea, would rise up and revolt, would topple the South Korean regime. General Yu Song-chul even claimed that the assurance of countrywide uprisings in Korea following the fall of Seoul was one of the major factors in hardening Kim Il-sung's resolve to invade. In this manner, our war scenario was flawed from its basic inception. Indeed, Kim himself noted bitterly in the aftermath that not even one uprising had occurred. If only a few thousand workers had risen up in Pusan, then we certainly could have liberated all the way down to Pusan, and the American scoundrels could not have landed. General Yu Song-chul would later be fired by Kim for his failure to achieve victory, but the war plan in this case was not Yu's. It was Stalin's, and it was both drawn up and communicated by the Soviet military advisers on hand in Pyongyang. Interestingly, Kim's mention of Pusan and the use of the Pusan perimeter later on to defend against the last gasps of the northern offensive denote the true reason why Kim neglected to send a dedicated task force to seize the vital port city from the Allies at the outset of the war. Kim Il-sung, much like his Korean advisers, fully anticipated that all military goals aside from Seoul were of minimal importance since the fall of Seoul would result in the capture of Pusan by native supporters of Kim's regime anyway. The moment this proved untrue was the moment that the scales began to fall from Kim's eyes. But even before such a dent in the Soviet-sponsored war plan presented itself, problems were already making themselves felt in the North Korean high command on the first days of the war. The Soviet Union's military advisers had essentially built the North Korean People's Army up from the ground, and that army was still very much dependent upon these same advisers for their communication and leadership expertise. It was thus imperative that these figures remained in place within the armed divisions that they had helped to develop and lead in the past, or at least that they stay in the background, in an advisory role. The North still depended upon the Soviets for communication equipment even, and for linking several divisions and battalions together. Most of the soldiers sent across the 38th parallel had never trained without their Soviet advisors, and it is thus incredible that Stalin ordered all such personnel to leave their posts on the first day of the war and to return to the Soviet Union. On the surface, Stalin's explanation to Kim appeared reasonable. It is too dangerous to keep our advisers there, Stalin claimed. They might be taken prisoner. We don't want there to be any evidence for accusing us of taking part in this business. It is Kim Il-sung's affair. Yet this cynical abandonment of their ally after leading him to the edge of the abyss 
had never been suggested before to Kim, which meant that his forces were totally unprepared for the evacuation of virtually all of their most experienced, well-connected military personnel at the most critical time. As Ambassador Shtikov, the permanent Soviet ambassador in Pyongyang, explained, the impact of such a withdrawal was immediate and disastrous. Shtikov said, The command staff of the North Korean People's Army does not have battle experience. After the withdrawal of Soviet military advisors, they organised the battle command poorly. They use artillery and tanks in battle badly and they lose communications. From the very beginning of military actions on the forward advance of units and formations, staff communication was lost from top to bottom. The general staff, already on the first day of battle, did not direct the battle since it did not have firm communications with a single division. Stalin's act here essentially cut the legs out from under the North Korean People's Army before it had even gotten itself across the border, and he had then snipped off the ears and blocked out its eyes for good measure. Stalin's reasoning that by keeping his advisors in the North Korean army, he would then provide evidence of his own guilt, was of course bogus, because everyone from the drab foreign office clerk in London to the humble Aussie on his way to the peninsula had been told of Stalin's complicity in the invasion, or had at least been led to suspect it. If they had wanted to, Washington could have produced a laundry list of evidence which pointed to Soviet support of the North's attack. This quite aside from the other published facts that the North Korean state, its army and the regime of Kim Il-sung were all Soviet creations. Thus, we are faced with either believing that Stalin withdrew at this point in the war because he feared being caught out, or that he did so for another more nefarious reason that he was beginning to implement his plan to hamper the northern advance and achieve his preferred policy goal. Indeed, from the moment Seoul fell and the South did not fall, Kim Il-sung knew that he was in trouble. This realisation dawned in the midst of messages from Stalin to push on regardless and to attack now while the shock was still a factor. By the time of the 1st of July, it was clear to Kim that the war he had expected would not be forthcoming now. The American scoundrels had committed their forces to the war after all, and detachments of UN states would almost certainly be following them. Far from the lightning strike and subsequent southern collapse he had been told to expect, Kim was beginning to realise that this conflict he had been encouraged to instigate was turning into something quite different entirely. For these reasons, Kim had hesitated when Seoul fell, perhaps not expecting to have to actually advance beyond the Han River at all. Yet it quickly became apparent when the South signified its intention to fight on that a crossing at this critical defensive line would be necessary. Remember that at that point, the Truman administration were eagerly waiting to see whether the North Korean People's Army would in fact cross the line, and Dean Acheson, the Secretary of State, had engaged in some serious communication acrobatics to make sure that the messages sent to General MacArthur wouldn't enable him to properly hold the North back. On the 30th of June, both President Truman and Joseph Stalin would have been pleased to denote that the northern advance had broken over the Han River. For Truman, this meant that the necessary threat to the southern position would be an easily presented case to Congress. For Stalin, this meant that it was time to implement the next phase of his plan. Between the 1st to the 5th of July 1950, as the North Korean People's Army moved several divisions southwards, a succession of questionable strategies followed. The most glaring issue was that of a brand new war plan. Now that the original one had suffered an ignominious failure, 
and the south hadn't just collapsed at Kim's feet, it had to be replaced, and this one called for an advance towards Busan above all, which made good tactical sense. The small print of the new war plan, though, was less sensible. It wasn't until the 3rd of July that northern tanks started to move across the Han River, and Kim Il-sung expressed his anger at the fact that the crossing was disorganised and slow. Kim well knew that Stalin had neglected to provide the North Korean People's Army with any river crossing equipment to speak of, a fact which illustrates either a terminal ignorance of Korean geography and the practicalities of a military campaign on the Soviet side, or a tactic which aimed at something more sinister. In addition, in several cases, the armoured thrust of a division was significantly blunted by the bizarre decision to disperse the tanks and force them off the roads and onto the trickier mountain paths, with negligible benefits to the northern military position. This tactic really counted against the best chance that the north had for victory, a speedy armoured advance down the road southwards towards Pusan, to eliminate the few bases where air and naval forces could be held in anticipation for a counter-attack. By sending their tanks in loads of different directions, rather than focusing the raw power of the armour on a southern advance, much of the force was sucked out of the North Korean punch in the first week of July. Worse than this, when Kim requested an urgent restructuring of the army's leadership to make up for the absence of the Soviet military advisers, Stalin responded by instructing his officials in Pyongyang to craft a kind of military council led by seven men, including Kim, who would direct the war's traffic. In other words, rather than informed commanders in charge of advancing divisions, the final word would have to come from the Council of North Korean Elite, several hundreds of miles away from the actual fighting. On the 8th of July, Kim sent another request to Stalin. To allow the use of 25 to 35 Soviet military advisors and the staff of the Front of the Korean Army and the staffs of the 2nd Army Group, since the national military cadres have not yet sufficiently mastered the art of commanding modern troops. No record of a reply from Stalin has since been located, and since no Soviet advisers were ever captured, it must be concluded that Stalin simply ignored his allies' urgent pleas. Speed was of the absolute essence if Kim's assault down south was to be successful, but speed seems to have been very low on Stalin's list of priorities. We often hear of the North running out of their supply lines, yet even when these lines were in range, the North suffered badly from a lack of coordination among the different arms of the army. Any bridges required the wasting of precious time, as sufficient bridging apparatuses were constructed on site. Fuel frequently ran low, as did rations for soldiers and ammunition for their weapons. On top of this, the aforementioned war plan which the army had adopted after the fall of Seoul was constantly being tweaked by Stalin's representatives in Pyongyang, leading to further confusion on the ground. Above all though, forgetting all those terrible things we've just looked at, the most significant and most damaging act which Stalin arranged and approved was that order which came in two parts. In the first place, the North Korean People's Army was to split its three divisions apart, so that two continued down towards Busan, and the remaining division drove instead to the southwest. In the second place, these two divisions that were remaining were then further divided, so that the initially threatening thrust of the 6th, 3rd and 4th divisions was reduced to one division, the 3rd, 
plodding down along southwards, having left behind a tank regiment which had accompanied it since the attack was first launched. Major northern victories, such as that on the 20th of July, which opened the way to an advance towards Busan, were significantly reduced by the decision to split the 3rd and 4th Divisions that had taken part in that battle and to send the 4th Division to the west, where it rode parallel to the 6th Division and supposedly mopped up the remaining resistance of the Republic of Korea Army in perhaps the most remote regions of the south's landscape. Through the adventurous actions of the 6th and 4th Divisions over July, by the end of the month, the North Korean 2nd Corps, which included these divisions under its umbrella, had reached something of a crisis. Fuel, food and ammunition had been severely depleted. Supply lines had been cut thanks to the far-flung advances into the remotest portions of the peninsula, and the men were exhausted after such a meandering, pointless goose chase in so many directions. They joined the wider 2nd Corps strategy on the 25th of July, with the intention of pressing against the Pusan perimeter from the west, while the 3rd Division pressurised it from the north. Such a strategy made sense, throw everything you have at the Pusan perimeter and hope it works, and this could easily be excused as sensible by the Soviet command, but it was clear that by advancing as they had, the initially ominous threat that the 2nd Corps had presented had mostly dissipated by the time the assault had to be launched against the Pusan perimeter and the UN and Republic of Korea forces who clung on within it. Conventional explanations for the underwhelming wastage of northern military potential over the month of July 1950 normally revolve around the supremacy of Allied air power, the exhaustion of the northern soldier, or the increasing resolve of the Allies in the face of their advance. All of these factors certainly didn't help Kim's chances, but the true reasons for his army's failures, I would argue, stemmed from an internal blunting of the North Korean sword, courtesy of Stalin. It is possible to attribute such decisions to Stalin because only the Soviet chairman would so deliberately reduce the North's ability to advance. In the absence of their unity of command, of their best units, of a strong collected second corps surging down the peninsula, the Allies were able to collect themselves in the Pusan perimeter and prepare for the last great attack of the war, led solely by North Korean troops. The timeliness of the North Korean People's Army's weakening is also something to behold. At the critical period of mid-July, when the defences of the Pusan perimeter were not built up or prepared, a rapid blitzkrieg assault down south along the major road to Pusan could very well have rolled up the Allies before they had committed sufficient manpower to the region's defence. Those men who had been haphazardly committed had been swatted away by the northern forces, as the Allied command seemed unable to meet with or explain the strange success of the communist advance. By the time the 6th and 4th divisions of the North Korean 2nd Corps returned to attack the Pusan perimeter in late July then, that 10 days or so of breathing space had enabled General MacArthur to sufficiently reinforce the region and prevent the North from breaking through. Had they been invested into the initial push down south onto the Pusan perimeter, rather than sent off on some needless wandering to the southwest, where no real strategic objectives were located, the Korean War could well have taken on a different form altogether. 
that the Pusan perimeter was held and that the Allies managed to reinforce and supply their critical beachhead over the months that followed must be considered a significant Allied victory, perhaps the most important Allied victory of the period of retreat in the face of the Northern Supremacy. Either we believe that the utterly confused and outmatched Allied units were enough to stop the advance of the North, whose armies had been mistakenly wasted on running fool's errands, or we believe that such aspects of the Northern failure were connected. In an atmosphere where Stalin refused to replenish North Korean aircraft, or even to supply Pyongyang with anti-air weaponry for some time, the argument that it was the air war which saved the Pusan perimeter above all seems on the surface to be more convincing. Yet, as any enthusiast on such insurgency wars in Korea, Vietnam, or the like knows, such bombing or air supremacy is often less important than it may appear on the surface. Thanks to the Allied air supremacy which had been established by late July 1950, the North could only move their men and supplies at night, but they still managed Herculean feats of transport in spite of these limitations. As was often the case in the Korean War, one side just grew accustomed to the limitations which his enemy placed upon him and managed to excel in spite of such limitations, largely because, well, he had little choice. We must consider not just how the Allied supremacy affected the North Korean war effort, but also how Stalin's refusal to aid the North in their attempts to fight back against this supremacy led to the Allied success. Thanks to his frequent checks on the provisions of Soviet jet fighters, anti-aircraft weaponry and trained personnel, I would go as far as saying that Stalin greatly aided the Allies not merely in the pursuit of their air war in Korea's skies, but also in the wider Allied strategy on Korean soil. Thanks to Stalin's undercutting of Kim's war effort, the Soviet Union had helped both to launch the North Korean invasion and to ensure its failure. By August 1950, it would be apparent to all that the North could not break through the Pusan perimeter, and thus, against all odds it seemed, General MacArthur would formulate his strategy for the take-back of the peninsula. By so doing, he helped set Stalin's wider strategy into motion, just as Stalin had inadvertently aided the Truman administration in their efforts to craft the conflict that they needed. These two rivals, for their own reasons, had acted as better allies to each other than they had acted towards their own legitimate allies in the past. As the days progressed, from July into August, it became apparent that Kim Il-sung's best chance for total victory had passed. It would be some time before Kim would ever dream such dreams again. With the arrival of fresh American reinforcements, and news of Allied reinforcements from far afield doing the rounds, it seemed that the war was entering a new phase. Next time, we'll see how the United States reacted and benefited from these developments on the peninsula, as President Truman manages to glean from the situation the policy goals he desired, and the PR campaign he so desperately needed. I hope you'll join me then, history friends, and I hope this episode, if a bit controversial and perhaps even unwelcome to some of you guys, was still an instalment that made you think, and made you want more Korean War content in the future. As always, be sure to let me know what you think, as I, your humble host, guide you through the complexities and intrigues of the Korean War. Thanks again for listening, this has been episode 30, my name is Zach, and I'll, hopefully, be at least seeing most of you all, soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.